Stuart Holman here. Good to be with you again for this fourth in our series on Jesus' final week before his arrest and crucifixion. In uh, this chapter of Mark, in a series of disputations in the temple courts, Jesus just dealt with two of the great political parties of his day, the Pharisees and the Herodians, as he called upon people to live up to their obligations both to God and to Caesar. Well, the next group to step up to the metaphorical plate were the real heavy hitters, the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the party of high priests, aristocratic families and merchants, the wealthier classes of Jerusalem. And because naturally the wealthy types tend to want to preserve the status quo, they had forged good relations with the Roman rulers of Palestine, even though they represented a fairly conservative view within Judaism. Now, while their rivals, the Pharisees, claimed the authority of piety and learning, the Sadducees had genealogical pedigree and high social, religious and economic standing. When Jesus condemned the temple and its cult, this was a direct assault on the privilege and the power of the Sadducees. So Mark 12 verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Now, of course, the other mark of the Sadducees was that they held that only the first five books of the law, the books attributed to Moses, held any authority. They wanted nothing to do with all of the oral traditions and intellectual debates of the Pharisees. They just had their first five books. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Now, the trap the Sadducees are trying to spring here relies on the law of Leverite marriage, as recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. It's the same law that was central to the story of Ruth and, and of Boaz. Surely Jesus can't discard the direct teaching of the law of Moses. Surely the Sadducees have trapped both Jesus and the Pharisees in their belief in the resurrection. Surely the resurrection looks a bit silly. Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God had said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Now, Jesus' reply cuts straight through the Sadducees' arrogance. He argues directly from their own scriptures and shows them simply and plainly that God is greater than they ever allowed, that his resurrection of the dead posed no problem 
to the petty difficulties of the Sadducees. And in fact, we should, as a side note, remember that our own expectations of the resurrection are probably less than the reality will be. Anyway, Jesus calls out the underlying problem of the Sadducees. They're wrong because they don't even know God. They don't know his power or his word. Now, those Sadducees kind of are dispatched, but they are immediately contrasted with the very next man who steps up to question Jesus. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, this is another of those stock tests of orthodoxy from a teacher of the law. They'd counted up 613 commandments in the law of Moses. The challenge of nominating the most important of them all meant that Jesus was now going to be open to the charge of weakening the other 612 laws and thereby offending those who would champion one of them. But Jesus is very clear in his response. Verse 29. The most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So, Jesus begins his answer by quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. For the traditional Jew, this is called the Shema, which they pray every morning and every night. Of course, you can't love God in this way and hate your neighbor as well, whom God has created. So the second commandment is kind of brought into the first, love your neighbor as yourself. That Loving God is going to mean you've got to love your neighbor, the two hang together. Or verse 32, well said teacher, the man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Notice the implication that the teacher of the Lord draws out from Jesus' answer. If loving God and neighbor is first, then this makes somewhat secondary all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices and rituals of the temple, including its priests and lawyers and many festivals. When Jesus saw that he'd answered him wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any questions. If you've been a Christian more than five minutes, I don't expect that we're breaking any new ground for us as we review Jesus' call to love God and to love our neighbour. One of the delights of discipleship is we don't always have to grasp for novelty. Following Jesus very often is more about slowing down and going deeper. And Jesus' call to love God and to love our neighbour gives us this opportunity today to press in some more to this basic idea. Loving God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength is really a call to love God with all our faculties, with everything we've got, with whatever we've got. 
Biblically, these are overlapping aspects of our humanity. But if you'll allow me to push past the risk of breaking that all apart, it's worth thinking about each dimension for just a few moments. First of all, the heart. In the Bible, the heart is the centre of our will, the place where we evaluate things and decide. It's the place where we commit ourselves to action. It is, if you like, the command centre of the human person. So that means our loving of God with all our heart begins with choosing to love him. Love is always a decision of the heart before it is an emotion. Yes, it is that too, biblically. One leads to the other so that we're actually to love God ultimately with our feelings as well. Now, sometimes in my tradition, Christians can be a little bit uncomfortable with the idea that we feel emotion in our love for God. We keep our hands firmly by our side, we keep our upper lips stiff, and we button it all down tight. But in this, brothers and sisters from other Christian traditions and cultures perhaps have something to teach my tribe. You know what? It's okay to stir our emotions and to ride our feelings into loving God. After all, it's our affections that govern so many other parts of our decision-making in life. So let's love God with all our heart, mind and emotion. The next dimension of our love for God is our soul. We are to love him with all our heart and all our soul. Now, the way the word soul is used in the Bible is something like our idea of the inner being, the true self. When everything else is stripped away, when there is nothing left but the essential you, then right there we are to find love for God. That's what loving God with all our soul looks like. It's the core of who we are. The mind. The next dimension to loving God is with our mind. That is to say, we love God with all our thinking and all our intellect. We apply our rational selves to him and to understanding what he has revealed of himself. Perhaps my tribe of Christians don't need too much encouragement here. But let's be reminded that our thinking should all be directed to do all it can to awaken and stimulate our love for God. We read his word. We prayerfully consider it. We work hard with our brain to understand whatever we can. We digest it. We memorize it. We internalize it all so that we give it expression in love throughout all of our lives. Strength. The fourth dimension of our whole being with which we are called to love God is with all our strength. Obviously, this is a call to love God with our actions, with our hard-working service, where we put our body on the line. We never stop with the heart and the mind, but we also love with our hands and feet and our legs and with our sweat and our toil and all our energy. This is where our love for God overflows into loving our neighbour. It's where it all gets very practical very quickly. So for our reflection today, how might we stir ourselves to love God more? Which of your faculties will you use to stir yourself to love God more today? Perhaps you will talk to God now about that in prayer.